welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clyde Built Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sager, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. Busy man. Hi, Sophie. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm exhausted, but um, well. Good. You um, have to keep your energy up. You've got another week to go. How are you keeping your energy up? <laughs> well, I took the day off yesterday. That was great. Did we, you? Uh, we all went to visit Edinburgh Castle, and then we went out for a nice meal. Wow. So that's my relaxation. I'm now ready for the next week. What did you? Where did you go? What did you get? We went to a nice Turkish restaurant. Yum. Nice kebab. Yeah. Um, so tell me what we're waiting for this week. So today is the uh, the theme on adaptation and loss and damage. So there's various events going on and announcements being made. But we shall see it by the end of the day what they all look like. So uh, what kind of thing are we looking out for? Well, the UK, for example, has announced a whole bunch of money, I think 200 plus million for adaptation, which is good. Um, okay, other countries 200 plus some... million? Yeah. And so Nicola came out with something that was... No, this is adaptation. Loss and damage. Yeah, that and was loss and damage. So she's saying... Uh, nobody else has come up with loss and damage. Still they, not. They're just okay. adaptation. Okay. Adaptation is, is uh, the comfort zone. Right. It's just not enough coming. But loss and damage is new and uh, outside the comfort zone. So we'll see what they say about that. Okay, and what else are we looking out for? And then uh, the high-level negotiations now start. The, the low-level one is over. There's been some progress on various things, but uh, we will see what happens now with the ministers arriving and the final bits being negotiated. So this is the environmental ministers from all of the 197 yep. ratified yes. nations? Yep. The ministers come for the second part of the the COP, uh, the high-level part, and that's when the deals are done um, between different countries. And where are they going to be doing their negotiations? These are all usually behind closed doors. So open in the open meetings, they just have discussions not negotiation. Right. 
and so no no one can go and witness that unless no. they are a minister. Exactly. And Those are all the, behind closed doors. And then at the end of the day, they tell us what's going on and what they've what exactly. they've agreed. Exactly. Right, right, right. And is that in the blue zone? Yes, I'm. I'm assuming they'll they'll have private meetings going on in in different rooms, which will be restricted, and we won't be allowed to get into. Okay, okay. And then, do you have somebody giving you the information directly? We will hear. Yes, what happened inside those rooms? Amazing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, warn us or remind us of any any topics we should be looking into, defining, describing, understanding? Well, right now, um, a lot of it is just about the money. So, right. you know, keep an eye on the amounts, keep an eye on how much for adaptation, um, and if anything comes for loss and damage. Those are the three items on the money front to keep an eye out for. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. See Good. you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Next, we'll move over to our part on the Green Zone and Fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow. How are you doing? Um, good. I was up early this morning to get to Glasgow, so a little bit tired, but um, half excited to be here, half like I just find it all A, quite overwhelming, and B, a bit like we've had quite a lot of bad news recently about Cot. So a little bit, you know. Iffy. Stressful, iffy, iffy's good words, um, yeah. So first of all, I'm just going to introduce you Earth by Helena, Helena Barrett, um, who has been on our show last week and is going to start taking over some of the hosting roles, <laughs> which is exciting because her network is vast and fabulous and she's got an amazing way of thinking about things and a very like political way of explaining things that for us lay people. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. And tell me a bit more about this iffiness. Um, well, some news broke this morning uh, from Global Witness that there are more fossil fuel delegates here at COP26 uh, than there are from any other nation. There's over 500 of them here. Um, the country with the next highest number of delegates is Brazil with 400 and something. Um, worryingly, the fossil fuel delegates make up more than all the delegates from the eight countries most impacted by climate change. Um, and when you think about what happens in closed negotiation spaces and the influence these fossil fuel lobbyists have, it's just, it's just quite heartbreaking, really, for the countries who are being impacted by the climate crisis. So um, do you say lobbyists or delegates? Uh, uh, delegates who are who are lobbying lobbyists. for the fossil fuel because industry. like would they so when because uh, I've been here I was here all last week as people know and um, I've not come across any fossil fuel delegates is that just because of the people I'm hanging out with is it because I'm not looking in the right places like where are these people hiding um, I mean it'll be a mixture probably partly the people you're hanging out with don't have many connections to the fossil fuel industry yeah, yeah. Um, but they won't be coming under the guise like Shell don't have a pavilion here mm. they'll be coming as part of probably other businesses or even other states perhaps um, who have a lot of vested interest in fossil fuels um, or kind of you know well, I don't know on their own mm. perhaps mm. Uh, so you're yeah, talking sneaky. in the blue zone or are you talking all around um, Glasgow? Blue zone delegates, I think that means. Because the other iffy thing is these. there's a lot of little private kind of clubs, private members clubs, mm. um, that are hosting the heads and the states of yeah. companies, countries, 
and I don't know, just loads of different powerful people coming together making decisions, but none of them even really have passes to the blue zone. So they know that the environmental people are here and they want to make change, but they're doing it in a very different secret society kind mm. of way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is quite scary because you just don't know what they'll be, you know, whether it's greenwashing or whether it is sincere, deep desire to make great innovation. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a shame that the negotiations aren't super open and transparent yeah. and everybody can see what's going on and how it's happening. I think it would be useful, I mean, for so many reasons, but especially for activists who are really trying to make change. They understand, all of us, if we understood how the negotiations technically worked and what the lobbying powers were and how decisions were made, it would make our lives easier to understand where we would perhaps need to target or the types of work we would need to do to... Right, right, right to change how it's currently happening because we've had 26 cops now and emissions are still going up and they're not due to come down anytime soon. We aren't seeing any commitments to phase out fossil fuels properly, especially, you know, coal, which the, the, the president of COP26 this year, Alok Sharma, his own words, he wanted to... Uh, what was the word exactly? To put coal in the past or whatever his phrasing was. What was the phrase? I can't remember, I don't know. Sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> Whatever it was. About coal in the past. <laughs> it's going to annoy you. We're going to jump it in when, it, when you're The about. word I'm thinking of begins with a D. Yeah, we're going to jump around. We'll come back to it. Um, but, uh, and that's coming from a country who still are, you know, creating new fossil fuel projects in the North Sea, mm -hmm. the Campbell Oil Field. <laughs> Um, I, in terms of podcasts, would highly recommend listening to the podcast Drilled, hosted by Amy Westervelt. She basically looks at the history of fossil fuel lobbying, and if it doesn't make you really angry, then nothing will. So <laughs> give it a listen, and uh, yeah, start getting mad at fossil fuel. Hi, I'm Tessa Khan, Director of Uplift. Um, in short, I certainly don't think we can call this COP a success yet, despite the best efforts of the UK government to distract um, everyone last week with a series of announcements, many of which were uh, recycled commitments um, outside of the auspices of the core business of the UN negotiations this week. So no accountability, uh, really not connected to the, the you know, focused, focal matter, which is the need for countries in the global north especially to reduce emissions in line with what's needed for 1.5 degrees. Um, I think today the news that there are uh, 500 fossil fuel lobbyists in the conference as well certainly draws attention to the fact that, you know, this is a forum in which governments are still um, feeling pressure to continue to pander to the interests of the fossil fuel industry instead of listening to the scientists who have made it um, crystal clear this year, including the International Energy Agency in a report commissioned by the UK COP presidency, that we can't have any new oil, gas or coal developments um, if we're going to meet the 1.5 degree threshold, which for the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe, um, means they have to unequivocally reject the development of new oil and gas fields like the Cambo oil field, or we, there's no way that we can consider these efforts to be a success. Amazing. I'm Tamsin Edwards. I'm a climate scientist at King's College London. Thank you. And if there was one bit of advice you could give to people who are just beginning their climate journey, 
what kind of action would you get them to take? Um, well, don't lose hope. Don't think it's too late. You know, get informed about uh, the difference that each action we, we take can make in terms of avoiding CO2 uh, emissions and the other actions we can take because it isn't this kind of hopeless situation where everything's too late and we can do nothing. That's just not the case. There's no kind of point of no return with climate change. Um, there was a really nice quote actually recently from Greta Thunberg, which I'll, I'll forget the exact details, but it was something like, um, it's never too late to do as much as we can. Uh, I quoted it on my blog post recently, um, which is basically saying that every tonne of CO2 that we avoid emitting helps and every 0.1 degree of warming that we avoid helps. Mm. So even if we end up peaking warming at you know, 1.8 degrees versus 1.7 will make a difference mm. versus 1.6. Yes. And so it's not this kind of threshold or cliff where we go past it and nothing will ever be the, you know, the same again. Actually, we can change things and we can continue to change things. And even if we were to overshoot the one and a half degree threshold, which might be quite likely, we can come back and we can try and not overshoot for too long, mm. you know, for, mm. for a few years, a couple of decades and come back and, and minimise the damage as much as we can. Yeah. And I'd like to know, so, you know, I'm speaking to lots of different people all around COP, from politicians to scientists to business people to, you know, activists. And um, the people here are obviously the people that are trying to make change. And there is a lot of innovative ways of making change that I've heard. Do you, from what you've seen at COP and from how you kind of know about the world, do you feel that this, the, there is a shift happening in all sectors and... Do you believe that it will get us somewhere? Do you believe that it will get us there? I think there's shifts in all sectors. There obviously isn't necessarily a shift in all actors in each sector. Mm. Um, but where, where, whichever, where, whether we're thinking about different businesses or the law or banks or transport or individual behaviour, like every sector has people making change, has innovation, has people changing the way they live. Uh, has people inventing technologies, has people making things more efficient and work better. Uh, so every sector has something. Um, clearly, you know, we're not there yet. It's not enough yet. And, the, and the, the sort of pledges that each country has put forward, they're not enough yet. And even then, their, their promises, they're not, you know, we have to see if those actually play out in reality as well. Right. We have to see if those promises get turned into laws and regulations and incentives and all of that um, to actually make these make these cuts. Um, so we're, we're a long way off yet, but it's not to say that nothing is happening. Right. I just, you going into the kind of different mechanisms for uh, implementation of these laws that, as, as we've been telling listeners, are nationally determined contributions and it's each country's um, actions that will and targets to get them to this 1.5 degree um, emission reduction. What, so what is it that countries need to do to actually implement these types of laws? You were saying subsidies and, and, and mandates, but you know, can you describe them a bit better to people? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the cuts, we need to cut our emissions by about half in the next 10 or by 2030. Um, in terms of how, that will vary by country. Um, the UK has put out one of probably the most detailed plans just only just a couple of weeks ago, the UK's um, net zero strategy. And so <clears throat> people will be familiar with maybe some of the things already, things like um, 
we have a certain date for when we won't be able to buy petrol and diesel cars. Mm. We have a certain date for which we won't be able to, uh, that we'll be expected to be, um, uh, you know, transitioning away from buying new gas boilers to other alternatives like heat pumps. Um, we are starting to see uh, pledges around phasing out coal, around um, stopping deforestation, around reducing leaks of methane from the oil and gas industry pipelines. So there are lots and lots of different ways of doing it and, and often they come with a particular date because you need a certain time to phase out a technology or um, you know to we often have the new technologies in place but we just haven't yet scaled them up mm -hmm. um, so you know electric cars is an obvious one where a while back they were quite rare they were very expensive the batteries didn't get you too far in your mileage um, but now it's much much more common they're much cheaper they might be a little bit more expensive to buy originally but then over their lifetime the savings that you have make them uh, are making them cheaper and cheaper all the time and so you know we're getting more of the electric points to to, to make them viable um, better batteries all the time so often it's we have the technologies there but we just need that sort of that hard end date of things like 2030, 2035 to, to stop the old technologies, to make sure that companies are making it um, cheaper and more efficient to use the new. Um, and they need the governments to put that regulation in. Businesses kind of like to have that um, even playing field. Exactly. They want to know that every business in the country and perhaps ideally the world with the global you know world we live in, um, they want to know that everyone's on an even playing field and then they don't often mind making those those changes those efficiencies those changes in technology as long as they know it's a it's an equal um, competition it's like the market playing field then shifts and then the all of the insulators or the car factories or whoever whichever kind of business knows that they've got to all be doing the same thing and going yeah. to the same goal so it just evokes competition also within yeah. the sector that is a uh, progressive towards green Exactly. So the governments provide that sort of framework and that sort of baseline and that expectation and that timeline. Um, but also businesses don't want to, for example, be sued in the future um, for not taking action on climate change, for uh, investing people's pensions in fossil fuels, which obviously are a, a dying, you know, um, investment. Um, and so, so there are kind of self-interested motivations, which I think is, is fine. Like mm. you can have a business acting on climate change so that they avoid you know i don't know reputational damage or something but as long as the actions are there right it doesn't really matter if they're doing it because they're lovely sweet people or because they want to protect their business interests but either way you just need to cut the emissions totally now i have a question that not many people can answer <laughs> and i don't know if you can either but it's something that i've really been um, struggling with over the past few weeks is this plea for systemic change that we're all asking for right or at least um a lot of people saying the economy is currently not right um this is a capitalist system where, where gross is gross is valued over people and planet and profit um and so there's models like the donut economy or the regener regenerative economy or the you know there's so many of them circular economies um to change the system, we need things like um, plugins in in the law to stop ecocide, for example, or plugins in businesses that will um, mean that if they're not green, that they will be automatically, let's say, um, charged by some I don't know I don't know what what kind of mechanism. 
what is systems change to you and how are we going to shift it within the current, like fast enough within the current model that we're living in? Mm. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a complex question. Right, but I sorry. Think, <laughs> you, know, but I think, you know, in some ways people, I think people would say we've already undergone a systems change. We've undergone a kind of tipping point in opinion and, right. and you know, acceptance of the problem. So, you know, it's not that long ago people were debating whether to even act on climate change mm-hmm. how serious was it mm-hmm. and should we just wait a bit was mm-hmm. it that bad anyway um, and now there's there's such a clear and a near universal not universal but near universal acceptance that we've got to take action it's got to be fast because we're trying to aim for one and a half degrees of warming as yeah. the limit so that in itself is a system change and now many more uh, decisions are incorporating climate change within them as a background you know the analogy I always think of is um, we, we, we so often think of health and safety as a as a as a consideration in our I don't know if we're planning an True. event or, yes, yes. or something and it's almost like planetary health and safety yes. is becoming a kind of background and a, and a consideration in everything we do how are we going to reduce energy use how are we going to try and use lower carbon energy Obviously, other environmental factors come into that, like plastics as well, plastic use and and, um, waste in in other ways, um, biodiversity, obviously, you mentioned. So, you know, there are kind of, um, there is a background and a a sort of, we're we're now sort of swimming in an ocean of of climate change as a a part of decision making Mm. in a way that I think we haven't before. Mm. Now, of course, as I say, it's not. It's not there yet. It's not universal enough yet, and it's not fast enough yet. But we have seen in a lot of things like solar power efficiency, electric vehicle batteries, and things, um, technologies accelerating really fast and faster than people expected. So if that happens, obviously in enough sectors, that will really help. Uh, but other things will be more stubborn, and you know we're we're still working on it. Wow, I'm feeling inspired. I because so my job for. A- for a very long time still kind of is, is working with the Energy Performance Buildings Directive within the European Commission and it's all about the building codes, you know, the codes of buildings and and what each member state are, have as their, as, their, as their codes. And back in the day, prior to this like environmental consciousness, you had fire safety, earthquake safety, health and safety for buildings, right? But it was never about energy. And energy in building, in building codes or energy efficiency in building codes have actually been around for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. So that is the beginning of system change, but now all new buildings in Europe have to be nearly zero energy buildings. Mm. So it's law. It's a system change in law. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and the, I mean, the UK's net zero uh, sort of policy is law, right? Mm. The UK, sort of back, dating back to 2008, has put its climate emissions sort of pledges into law. It is illegal for us not to get to net zero mm. in 2050, mm. which is quite amazing if you think about it. And I, I understand why people are sometimes demoralized about some of the things that the UK has done on climate change. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm really not trying to say that we're perfect or, 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 or anything, but there are certain aspects like putting emissions cuts into law, which is, which is strong, which is a good framework. And it's based on scientific evidence, the Climate Change Committee that advises the government. You know, they do lay out these pathways for when to stop certain technologies and how to... Um, you know what kind of expectations we might have over individual behavioural change and all this and and the government takes up a lot of those recommendations not all of them but a lot of them yeah 
My name is Aladisa Adinike. I'm here as a Nigerian youth delegate, an eco-feminist, climate justice activist. And yeah, um, COP has become an annual event, but need an holistic approach in tackling those crises because conferences cannot save us. Rather, we need more action beyond conferences to see that all of this agreement or commitment by world leaders becomes a reality in the various countries as soon as possible because the climate change crisis is happening rapidly and long-term goals of 2050, 2060, thereabouts can't save the planet. It's going to lead to more crisis. Hence, I call for more inclusivity of young people to have spaces naturally, for them not to keep struggling for their voice to be heard, for those that are here and those that are at home to be able to connect to the events, because it doesn't necessarily mean that you must be here before you can make your voice heard in this place clearly to the world. You know, it should have an automatic way of getting young people in this space for them to be able to carry on with the negotiation processes. Uh, well, I'm Sally Ranney, and I'm president of Global Choices. And Global Choices is an international all-women's organization, that, and it's also intergenerational. And we are focusing primarily on really what is the epicenter of climate change, and that is the melting of the Arctic sea ice, because that is what is causing most of what we're experiencing on the planet right now because it's our albedo effect. It reflects the sun, heat and radiation. And we've lost about 50 to 54 percent of that capability because the ice has been melting. We are really focusing on this is a global issue. It's not just a regional Arctic issue. And we've proposed a moratorium, a 10-year moratorium on the Central Arctic Ocean ice shield. What's really happening across the world right now is the cryosphere, all of the ice from both poles, all the glaciers, the Himalayas, etc., is headed towards extinction. And and we, we have an ice crisis on our hands. So when we looked at the whole picture of what was impacting climate, the Arctic sea ice is, is ground zero, literally. So our 10-year moratorium prohibits oil and gas exploitation, deep sea bed mining, a new shipping route across the North Pole, directly across the North Pole to save two or three days in shipping LNG um, to, to Western Europe. Uh, it also includes no radioactive waste dumping, including low-level radioactive waste, which actually has happened already in the Arctic Ocean, which is unbelievable. And also with the, um, it also includes no seismic testing which is really damaging to um, biodiversity and marine, particularly marine mammals. And no nuclear testing. None of these things we should be doing there anyway. Of course. But the burden of proof, unfortunately, is on global citizens, apparently, to make the case to preserve, uh, to preserve this area. So we want to protect the existing ice, 
and also because great uh, greater floods and more extreme floods and droughts in northern and central Africa are linked to the loss of the ice, the sea ice. Less precipitation in the Amazon is linked. Fires in California are linked. The heat dome along the Pacific Northwest coast of North America is linked. Almost anything, and the jet stream is wobbly now. That's why Texas froze, uh, because it can't contain the polar vortex. And also ocean currents now. Uh, the Gulf Stream, for example, is slower than uh, it's been, they think, in the last 2,000 years. It's slowing down. So this is a global impact. And our feeling is, our hope is, is that when global leaders really understand the magnitude of this impact, that what we're proposing by supporting that and also the Central Arctic Ocean is non-jurisdictional, so it doesn't belong to anybody yet, no nation. Mm -mm -mm. It belongs to the it, it belongs to humankind. In fact, in the law of the sea, it says uh, that we are um, that global commons are the heritage of mankind. So so there's several things that threat here several things you know that are threatened so if global leaders really understand what is happening we hope that this can embolden embolden them for really deep emission cuts that we need now to make those commitments and also for major investment in renewable energy uh, research in hydrogen drawdown technologies uh, CCS, which is carbon capture and sequestration, that has to happen um, along with very high level uh, diplomacy in, in the global community that this is not a regional problem, this is not a national specific problem, this is a global problem and we have to come together as global citizens. Amelia Womack, Deputy Leader of the Green Party, and we're here at COP, but it's been frustrating to see that those voices most impacted by the climate emergency are the most marginalised here at COP. Not only has there been barriers with visa and vaccine discrimination and inequality that has uh, meant that members of the Global South haven't been able to attend, not only have there been long queues, people with, uh, someone who's disabled not being able to access the venue, but also there is no way to feed into these negotiations. So those people who are on the front line of the climate emergency, whether that's pe people in the Philippines who have lost uh, their community and their friends and family as a result of hurricanes, or whether that's people who have lost uh, their, their homes because of deforestation with, uh, within the Amazon, and indigenous people just not being heard. There is no mechanism for those voices to be represented and recognised, but and a complete gap in the leadership of what they're saying from each country and the reality that they're delivering on the ground. And here we have um, Professor Ed Hawkins here. He's a scientist. So Ed, as a scientist, but also as a visual um, data person, 
What inspired you to create them? So the reason we need graphics like this is to communicate in a simple, visual, stark way as possible. Um, so I was actually invited to the, a literature festival in the town of Hay, a very famous literature festival, to do an event with um, an amazing poet and author called Nicola Davies. And she wrote some beautiful poems about the science and what, what is needed. Um, and I was looking for a way of presenting the climate science very simply to an audience which probably aren't used to seeing scientific graphics and graphs and axes. Um, and so I came up with this way of talking about the changes we've seen in the town of Hay. And so I created the climate stripes for, for Hay, showing temperatures changing from the blues to the reds uh, and presented it on the screen. And I could instantly see the audience recognize, ah, oh, I understand. It, is, it, it was very clear about the message. The world is warming and the town of Hay is warming as well. So actually, I've got another question that's just come to me. Um, what inspired you to go to Hay, a very famous literary festival, which everyone knows? Mm -hmm. right? um, so the, the, the festival wanted to put on uh, events with environmental science, that they recognise the importance of combining science and arts uh, together. And so we had several events there combining animations and artists and, and authors and poets. Um, so it was a wonderful combination of art and science. Yeah, well, I think that's fantastic. And again, it's a demonstration where scientists aren't just stuck in their lab um, trying to come up with wacky different things. Scientists are there, and if you do invite scientists, they will turn up and create something beautiful like the climate stripe. So what do the data mean that we're seeing here? So, so this one graphic represents every single temperature observation available to science. There are billions of measurements of individual thermometers made over the last 171 years represented in this graphic, all over the world, over the land and over the oceans, made by hundreds of thousands of people. So what it shows is the change in global temperature over those 171 years. So there's one stripe per year, 1850 on the left, 2020 on the right. And as you can see, as time goes on, the colours change from blues and dark blues uh, to, to gradually to lighter blues, to oranges, to reds, and then very recently, the very dark reds. Uh, and that's, there's a very striking, stark change, especially over the last 50 years, where the temperatures have changed very quickly, and that is represented by this very dramatic change in colour. Yeah. So, I mean, here we are, in, you in Hay on Wai, and then you created there. Here we are in Glasgow. So each individual place, even if you're in Papua New Guinea, you can create your own version of this. Absolutely. So <clears throat> the, the other important issue is that although the globe is warming as a whole, and that's what we tend to talk about a lot, that's a very remote concept, global average temperature. Well, what does that mean? No one experiences that directly. People experience the changes where they are. And so it's critical to communicate the fact that things are changing locally. And so, yes, you can uh, go to our showyourstripes.info website uh, and download similar graphics for every nation uh, around the world. And they've been used uh, all over the world to spread that message that, yes, climate change is affecting us here and now. Also, in terms of engagement, this is something I presume that even primary school children across the globe, they can get. Anyone can understand this. You know, so my scientist colleagues despair because there's no, there's, there's no numbers on it. There's no axes, right? But that's, that's what makes it work because it can be interpreted. It can be, people can be creative with it. And there are many, many talented artists are being so creative with this graphic to communicate to different audiences. Um, so one of the, the first uses was um, a, a chap in, in the United States painted his car, his Tesla car in these stripes and took it to um, a motor show. 
and that's not necessarily the audience where you would have a conversation about climate change. Um, but what happened was people came up to him and asked him, what on earth have you done to your car? You know, why is it these colours? And so it instantly started a conversation um, with an audience which wouldn't normally be engaged in that topic. Um, and it allowed, it drew people in, it allowed this conversation to happen. And we, we so need more local conversations like that with, with people who have similar interests to, to each other because they are the trusted messengers, the trusted tribes that we live in. Um, and having those conversations in those groups is absolutely critical. And that's why this graphic can be used so widely to start those conversations. Yeah, so um, we mentioned, um, yeah, the, the face masks and, and, you see, and you can see it on the internet in different places. What are the other uses that have surprised you um, artistically in the broadest sense? Yeah. Um, so uh, another one of the big first uses was by a rock band called Enter Shikari. Um, uh, and they have, for a long time, um, uh, talked in their songs and their music about um, the, the issues of climate change and the risks that we face. Um, and they took this graphic and used it as their backdrop for their gigs um, on the, the main stage of big festivals. Um, and they're playing in Glasgow this week. They've specifically come to Glasgow this week um, and performed two gigs um, uh, in, in here because they wanted to be here and they had the, had, had the graphic on the stage with them and talked about the climate crisis there. So can I ask, um, when was the uh, Hale, when was the festival, what year was that? Was that? Yeah. that was three years ago. Yeah. So this is my tongue-in-cheek question. Do you ever get sick of seeing this? <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in one way, yes, but also you know, every time someone sends me a new use, you know, I, I just get emails you know, almost every day people sending me photographs. I've seen your graphic um, in all over the world. Um, and that's so inspiring to see that people have taken up this and used it in so many novel and creative ways. Yeah, because my question behind that is often we might see somebody um, like Vanessa Nakate or um, Greta Thunberg and we might say, okay, they've done it. So enter um, Shikari. Similarly, they've done that. So I'm a musician. So again, challenging myself. Is it something where I should just say, oh, this band has, said, has done something, that's enough. This rock band has done it. This pop band has done it. But then what about the rap artists or grime artists or the folk artists? Isn't it something where we have to keep going with this message and the messaging? We very much have to. The more people we can reach, the better. The conversations have to happen locally because unless the solutions to the climate crisis are, are talked about in everyday conversation and um, that will feed up through our voting and our policies to, and reach the politicians because they're the ones having to make the very difficult decisions about what to do. Um, uh, and they, that, the decisions they make need to they need them to be popular, otherwise they will become ex-politicians. Yeah. Um, and so it's so important why activism from, from the youth and from everybody here is so critical uh, to make it clear that the policies we need are popular and they will be supported. And, yeah. and so the more people, the more groups and the more artists that can use, use this graphic and many other graphics, it's not just this one, to, to start those conversations locally and inspire action, the better. And I think that's a good note because we have to uh, reiterate, it is Global Youth and Public Empowerment Day. And I think this is a, a great example. So now as you've, as you've gone around and in a way um, as an academic, as a scientist, you've placed yourself at this interface 
between where you're speaking to artists, you're speaking, obviously, your scientific community, and then now, obviously, your professor as well. What message will you then do you have for um, some of the decision makers based on what you have seen going to different parts, different places, and talking to different groups of people? We have so many difficult decisions to make from our politicians, but many of them are decisions which are clearly going to be popular and we want to do anyway. You know, for example, I think one key message is that, for example, changing to electric cars, which is an obvious necessary step, that will clean up our air. We'll have better air quality and that will save millions of lives around the world every year. These are very, uh, these are decisions which are easy, should be easy to make because they will, um, we want to make them anyway, irrespective of the climate crisis. And so those types of things we need to emphasise. Um, uh, but I think what the, the youth have done is they've changed the conversation. You know, they really have. They've shifted the discussion away from um, uh, the, the fringes on, um, on the sceptical side, from the lobbyists. That has been dramatically reduced because there's just such a loud voice calling for action. And so it's been fantastic as scientists to see that in action. Our science is being used um, to, to inspire uh, and, and change policy. And it's, it's fantastic to see. Well, I think that's, um, that's amazing um, because similarly, we're inspired by the youth base, everybody across the chain, whether you're established artists, and then as a scientist to give the youth that information yeah. that we can then act on. So thank you very much, Professor Ed Hawkins. Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Hello, this is Hayden Thorpe for Inside Cop on Clydebilt Radio. Throughout the summit, I'll be chatting with remarkable fellow artists, gathering inspiration and ideas on how we tackle the climate emergency alongside some select musical offerings. Today I'll be speaking with a true original. Matt Black is the co-founder of English electronic duo Cold Cut, composed of Matt himself and Jonathan Moore. Credited as pioneers of pop sampling in the 1980s, Cold Cut's music has been giving expression to their environmental concerns for decades now. As if that wasn't enough, beyond their work as a production duo, Cold Cut are the founders of Ninja Tune, a legendary independent record label first started in London in 1990 that now boasts satellite offices around the world. Ninja Tune are probably the most environmentally proactive record label there is. They state, It is clear that widespread change must come from our governments, the biggest global corporations, and in particular the fossil fuel companies, but we don't want to sit on our hands and wait for that to happen. We are changing how we operate step by step. The music industry is no different from any other industry, in that it is going to have to change a lot over the next decade, if we're going to stick around and help protect the planet for our children and our grandchildren. I started by asking Matt when he first began to realise environmental concerns would come to inform his entire working output. It's funny, I was talking with a friend of mine about this the other day, and in the 80s, when I, I was at uni with my mates, we were really not very politically awake at all. 
And um, I remember thinking there were those women at Greenham Common and they were a bit weird and what was all that about? And it really took quite a while for me to get any kind of political awakening. I liked black music and I liked the political strength of that from artists such as Gil Scott Heron and Fela Kuti. Um, and so that was something that I could recognize as a strong voices calling out for change and that there was stuff that was really messed up with the system that we should be challenging. But um, it took quite a while to really, the penny to really drop. And I think, in fact, before direct environmentalism, um, the campaign against the arms trade was something that awakened me politically. And my sister, who's a Buddhist, uh, it was some friends of hers were involved in that group of women that went to the British Aerospace Factory and disabled that Hawk aircraft, which was going to be sold as a military export to Indonesia, who'd then use it to kill lots of people. And these brave women went in there and disabled that aircraft as a political statement. And of course, they went to court for that. They did, in fact, get off. And when, when I heard about that, I thought like, wow, that's really heroic. And in fact, that was when I found out that the UK was a, a top exporter of armaments, one of the, the top two in the world, I think, the number one being American. It's like, wow, that makes me feel not proud at all to be from the UK. So that was a kind of a bit of a political awakening for me. And after that, I started getting a bit um, in contact with groups like Campaign Against the Arms Trade. And Cold Cuts Music did start to have some more messaging in. Uh, Stop This Crazy Thing was one of our first singles with Junior Reed, the vocalist there, and um, see what they're doing. You know, children are starving, people are dying, animals are dying, people are crying, governments are lying to you, don't let them tell you what to do, we've got to stop this crazy thing. Uh, it's, it's still still happening, isn't it? That is still a, a, a relevant lyric. So um, from that stage on, Colcutt started to want to our songs and music to be about something that's commentating on what we see, what's messed up with the world and what we might be able to do about it. Our first song, which was really about the environment, was Timber, which is really a sort of poem, an anti-deforestation poem, if you like. And um, that was put together as a sort of audiovisual piece with a friend of mine called Stuart Warren Hill. We used um, audiovisual samples of axes and chainsaws and also this rather poignant uh, voice of a native woman singing it sounded as if she was uh being affected and was sad about what was happening to her environment but there's no actual legible words there it's more of a poem so i guess by then which was 1997 we were pretty much awake to the fact that we were collapsing the environment and artists needed to get up and say this is wrong we need to do something about this let's have a listen to that seminal cold cut track timber Keep an ear out for the axe samples and the haunting voice of a native people singer.
Timber by Cold Cut. This song brings to mind for me the celebrated Canadian scientist Suzanne Simard, whose work in recent decades has brought new understanding to so-called tree sentience and communication between plants. I was wondering if Matt thinks that music might help us attend to matters outside of the individualistic narrative that's so dominant in our culture. We're in a capitalist and egotistical world as well, which has been overemphasizing the self. You know, I, I don't agree that some hardcore Buddhists might say that the self doesn't exist. The self does exist, and it doesn't. It is, as Buddhists said, not one, not two. So, you know, when you're talking about tree sentience, you're also talking about tree sentience as an example of network consciousness, because the trees all communicate to each other and that that this has been a pretty exciting new discovery for science actually uh, only in the last um couple of decades it went, you know we're still at very early stages of understanding the network consciousness of trees of the mycelium that connects stuff together of how different organisms talk to each other but i also get a lot out of the idea that humanity we are humanity as an organism. We, we are humanity is an organism as a group, as a species. We are an organism, and we're just sort of starting to use our network nervous system to communicate and think more as a group. Is this is what I believe we're hopefully heading towards? Is that transition to um, a, a more of a joined up thinking? Uh, a, a bigger organism rather than just a collection of different individuals and so this is a great important stage in, in humanity i think the climate and environment crisis it's coming at exactly the same time as this realization and this change has to and must take place if we're to surmount it it's sort of the challenge is there and the solution is there and they're sort of one and the same thing in a way i could have spoken to matt black all day it was really enriching and enlightening to spend the time I did with him. Although he won't be at COP, I asked what his hopes were for the summit, and I'll finish with his words. This has been Hayden Thorpe for Inside COP on Clyde Built Radio. Well, you know, the great fear is that it's just going to be business as usual. I mean, I was at COP in Copenhagen and in Paris, and, you know, there were some steps taken, but basically the existing... Uh, hegemony managed to keep things business pretty much ticking over as usual it has actually unfortunately been the result it remains to be seen whether this one can be different we all fervently hope so but you know Greta Thunberg and um, others like her but she's she's such a been such a good force because she's just an ordinary girl actually extraordinary but ordinary at the same time you know and yet she's she's stood up and people have gone actually we believe you more than we believe that prime minister sitting in parliament because you're, you're honest and you're not standing to gain from donations to your party and you know sweet seat on the directorship when you leave the cabinet and stuff like that so we don't really trust the guys at the top and i think some of them like all of us all of us we all have a, a good and side and a dark side and everything in between right um many politicians would say probably like well i'd love to make these changes but i don't feel that i have the mandate to do so so if the people really speak loud loud legibly and continuously that gives them more mandate to make those changes introducing eno insights 
This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. Yes, it's all looking good. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. Our current models are based on GDP, mm-hmm. but GDP doesn't value nature, it doesn't value well-being, or, and, it doesn't look towards the future. We have lost the ability to see long-term, sense of seeing timelines that are spanning up to 100 or 100,000 years have been lost. Mm-hmm. Attention has become so momentary. It's not about now, it is and should be about the future. Models need to be formed around this. The new Long Foundations work aims to foster long-term thinking in the framework of the next 10,000 years. Mm. How do you see the future in 2050 and beyond in 10,000 years? Um, well, I've, I wouldn't make any predictions because that's such a long time. Um, the only thing I would like to think is that I, I could contribute to the possibility that there will be a human race in 10,000 years' time and... And that there will be civilization. Civilization is the important part. And civilization requires stability. You can't really have a civilization in a very unstable, um, climatically or economically unstable uh, world. And we are moving towards a very climatically unstable world. So the, the fight against climate change is to me, is really not a fight for human life. I don't think that's going to disappear quickly. It's a fight for human civilization That could disappear very quickly. Um, it can break down really, really fast because civilization is based on the idea... Civilization is really another word for cooperation. It's based on the idea that lots of people could share enough of the same interests to want to make something coherent that hangs together. Um, to be able to share in large, large projects like, for instance, the National Health Service, an enormous cooperative project held together not by money, actually, because they don't get paid anything, (laughs) anything worth having anyway, Um, held together by a kind of commitment, really, and an understanding that this is a really good idea. Uh, my daughter, my middle daughter, is a doctor, and so I, I know kind of what life is like for people working in that enterprise. And it really is the case that it's goodwill and a sense of co- community that keeps it together. Um, well, that's what holds all civilizations together. Actually, you know, they're based on trust. They're based on the assumption that you're not going to suddenly stab me and steal everything in my pockets because you could get away with it. Um, well, that that kind of breaks down quite easily in, in bad situations. And I think that was one of the beautiful things to come out of the COVID pandemic, wasn't yes. it? The, the sense of community. I know that it was frowned upon by the health service, but the clap for our workers, the, the fact that it got people out of their houses and then talking to each other and coming together and there being a whole world of a community around you because there was nothing else to do. The pub community was gone. Um, the other amazing thing that it brought out, it, I mean, it uncracked so many nuts that we know about, but was the, just that image of the Venice canals 
and having the dolphin in it and having clean water and seeing how yeah. rapidly our ecosystems and biodiversity can change when we stop moving. So it makes me believe and know that Earth is going to be okay. Yes. It's just how we come together and how we want to be seen. It's, it's, how, it's what happens to us that is, is the frightening thought. Earth will be fine. I don't know if you've ever read that fantastic book called the world after us i think it's by it's by alan reisman i i believe his name is and it's just a sort of discussion of what would happen if humans suddenly disappeared and the speed with which nature reestablishes. i mean i even saw it when i lived in new york i i used to walk on what was called the west side highway which was this elevated road that never got finished on the high line. yeah high line that's what it's called <laughs> yeah and they just abandoned building. It just stops in the middle of the air. <laughs> um, and within five or six years, I would say, there were small trees growing out of the tarmac on this road. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty fast. So, so I'm very interested in technology and I don't think nature has all the technologies we need um, uh, I think there are a lot of very very interesting new ideas coming up which are basically technical ideas and they're novelties to nature our speakers, Sally Mulhook, Earth by Helena, Tessa Kan, Emily Womack, Ola Dosu, Adani Kay, Julie Spicecore, Tasman Edwards, Love Sega, Ed Hawkins, Sally Rani, Global Choices, Brian Eno, Matt Black, and for you for listening, to you for listening. <laughs>